everybody. Welcome to Dunkin' in the Van. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Mandy. And today, Mandy's bringing us our final installment of the Serial Killer Couple Files. So uh, our series that we have, I don't think we actually gave it the files name, did we? I don't know. It could be anything we want. <laughs> Whatever it is, we're wrapping it up today. That's right. Um, and Mandy's got a new case for us today. I have no idea anything about this one. Didn't look it up. Still haven't even drawn for it yet. So uh, <laughs> so I guess without further ado, tell us what we're talking about. All right. So today we are talking about Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown. So I don't think this is a super like mainstream or popular case necessarily. I found some information on it, but some of the documentaries or series that I watched actually had conflicting information. So I did get a little frustrated at one point (laughs) and um, I had to check a lot of sources. So hopefully I'm going to do this one justice guys. I'm doing my best. So, (laughs) all right. So Alton Coleman was born on November 6th, 1955 in Waukegan, Illinois. He was the middle of five children. He never knew his father and his mother was a drug user and a sex worker. And she was also institutionalized several times. The worst part about this whole paragraph is that she abandoned him in a trash can after she gave birth. Oh, yes. So she already had two children. He's the third. She decided she didn't want him at all. And she put him in a trash can. Her mother followed her, picked up the baby and took him back home. What the I mean, I have no idea how to even go say anything about that. It's just wrong. So, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, so he was rescued by his grandmother, but some people said that his grandmother ran a brothel. Uh, so sex work all around. Um, regardless, he was when he was under her care, he was often neglected. He was subjected to physical and sexual abuse. And he was living in one of Waukegan's very depressed and crime-ridden sections of town. Regardless if she owned a brothel or not, she did practice voodoo. And she Oh my God. Yes. And it's getting good. It's getting real all right off the right off the How job. is this not like um okay? <laughs> all right. Um, all right. So like I said, she practiced voodoo, but she would make little Coleman help by going to the cemeteries to collect cemetery dirt and kill small animals for her potions. Oh, God. So both situations are shitty. Like her, his mom got rid of him literally. And his grandmother, whether she had a shady business, she did practice voodoo and she put that at the forefront of their relationship. This kid's got zero going for him right now. Zero. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing nothing helping him out at all. From the get-go. All right. So he suffered brain damage, which was believed to be linked to his mother's drug and alcohol abuse during pregnancy and his childhood head injuries. I did not find a lot of information about what these head injuries were, but with the situation this poor kid is in, they could have been anything. Um, So this made it difficult for him to make rational decisions and He also abused drugs and drank. And, you know, this condition was worsened, obviously, by substance abuse. To make it worse, he was nicknamed Pissy 
because he was prone to wetting his pants. That's so horrible. Now he's only five years old. So when he was five years old, he was caught stealing a watch off of a man his mother was having sex with for her job. So that was his first like crime, quote unquote, right? In his teenage years, he's joined a gang. His gang name was Big Al and was picked up by police after breaking out windows of businesses. And when he was 14, done with being called pissy, done with just all the shit, he dropped out of middle school. By the age of 16, he was arrested for burglary. And by the age of 17, he and an accomplice raped and robbed a 54-year-old woman. Uh, Her name's Eleanor McIntyre. And he was acquitted of rape because the woman did not testify, but he did serve two years for robbery. So you're going to see a pattern start to emerge. And yeah, we'll get there. First, when he first gets out of prison, once he gets out of prison for robbery, he openly starts wearing women's clothing on occasions and he makes it known that he is bisexual. So that's just his newfound, you know, expressing himself once he gets out of prison. All right. When he's 19, he's arrested for another rape of 17 year old Sherry Patterson, but he was acquitted of the rape, serving time for a lesser charge. When he was 25, he was arrested again for attempted rape but the charge was dismissed when he was 27. He was suspect in a knife point rape and strangulation of a 15 year old girl. And at 28, he was accused of raping his very own eight year old niece. Her name is Melinda snow, but the charges on all of these were dropped. It ended up being seen as a family misunderstanding. His sister said, The judge was very upset and said it was an injustice for the child, but the mother dismissed the charges. So there was nothing that could be done. So as you can see, he keeps committing rape, sometimes robbery, and he never gets in trouble for much of it. He gets in trouble for lesser charges, right? So even with his eight-year-old niece, he convinces his sister to drop the charges. I don't know how the fuck that happens, but okay. Yeah, it was a family misunderstanding because that's normal. A fan. Yeah, okay. We're not even going to. I don't even want to get into that. Nope. All right. Holman, he was said to really have a way with words. He was charming. He was easy to befriend. Like he made friends super easy, uh, but he was full of shit the whole time. And that was like, yeah, that was part of the reason he was able to get away with so many early crimes and had most of these charges dropped. He was well-dressed, articulate, and he just really kind of had a way with words. He also thought that his grandmother's voodoo would protect him. That voodoo was deep ingrained in him, and he really kind of felt invincible. He's like, yeah, I can do whatever. Obviously, I'm not going to get in trouble. All right, God. He would soon marry a teenage girl, but within a couple of months, she called the police to get a police escort to get like get out of the house, get all of her stuff and get out. But she was smart enough to call the police and ask for an escort. And ask so, for help. Yeah. That's, yeah. Super that's huge. Yeah. She said she could not handle his fascination with bondage, rough sex, and young girls. Remember he's at least 28 at this point. Yeah. And she's a teenager. Yes. She had to have been at least, well, I don't know. I guess it depends on what the age of consent was and fucking wherever they're at. I don't remember. Yeah. They're in Illinois in the oh so it was probably it was probably like seven like 17 or 18 probably 17 yeah 
So um, not long after this, um, he was in North Chicago, where he raped 14-year-old Shalandra Thompson at knife point. He was arrested and arraigned for this crime, but he was, of course, released on bail because, you know, you have all these charges that have been dropped, but it's still in your record, right? And then you're like, yeah, let's give him bail. But at this point, he's like, yeah, nope, not sticking around here. He decides he's going to disappear and embark on a crime spree that would last seven weeks and cover multiple states. This is also the same year that in 19, it's 1983, that he meets Deborah Brown at a bar. And that would become his girlfriend and literal partner in crime. So who is Deborah Brown? I could not find as much information on Deborah. So I will give you what I could find. She was born on November 11th, 1962 in Waukegan, Illinois. She was one of 11 children. Holy cow. Her father had severe mental problems. He was an alcoholic, abused drugs, and physically abused family members, including his children. She was borderline intellectually disabled, suffered head trauma as a child, and was diagnosed with dependent personality disorder by a psychiatrist. Her IQ was at most 74. And during her education, she had academic, social, and discipline problems. She was known to abuse drugs. And in 1980, she overdosed on her drugs. And somehow, I did say where, but this is connected. She meets a man. It could have been in maybe a rehab facility or just on the streets. I'm not really sure. But she becomes engaged to this man fairly quickly. So it's like she overdosed, and I think he kind of helped her through it, and she Mm. becomes engaged to this man. But as soon as she meets Alton Coleman, she breaks off that engagement. She also did not have any sort of criminal background at this time. She didn't have the best background, but it was really just... I mean, it wasn't anything crazy. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, her dad kind of sucked and whatnot. And yes, she has a low IQ, but there was nothing. She didn't have a background like Alton did with, you know, robbery and burglary and all of the things that he escalated into. So she left her family and moved in with 28-year-old Alton Coleman and his grandmother at the time. And she started taking care of his grandmother almost immediately. And she also started a, and this is what was said all of the time, a master slave relationship with Coleman. So she, like we said, had a dependent personality. So he was definitely like her, her master, her leader, the guy would yeah, the alpha, and, whatever. Yeah, the alpha, anything he said goes right. Okay. So at the same time, Coleman was facing trial on that sexual charge of the 15 year old girl. And this, you know, he feared that he was going to go to prison. He meets Brown. And like I said, he's like, let's hit the road. And she decides, yep, great idea. So this is when they begin their crime spree across six states. And remember, it's a seven week crime spree. So let's get into what these two got up to. All right. Vernita Wheat is the first victim we are going to discuss. On May 29th, 1984, Coleman and Brown committed their first murder when they killed nine-year-old Vernita Wheat from Kenosha, Wisconsin. After Coleman, which his alias was Robert Knight, he befriended her mother, Wendita Wheat, and they became friends over a couple of months. Uh, So what he says is, like, they go to a carnival, they're having a great time, 
So I don't know if they, if she thought it was going to be a romantic thing or what was happening, but they befriended each other. Okay. So they were hanging out. They took the little girl, Vernita to a carnival. She had carnival tickets in her pocket. They walk back to um, the mother Juanita's apartment and Col or I'm sorry, not Coleman, Robert, Robert says, you know, um, can Vernita come with me back to my place? She's nine. Um, cause we want to pick up, um, I want to get this belated mother's day present I have for you. And she's like, Ugh. she's like, I don't know. And you know, he had shown a pretty big interest in her and her daughter, but I don't think she was thinking of it as like, oh, he's a freak. I think she was thinking of like, oh, this guy's super nice. And he like respects that I have a daughter. You know what I mean? So yeah. she was kind of like, I don't know about that. And he's like, how can I give you my address? Like literally it's not a big deal. Here's my address. This is where we'll be. I'm going to go and pick this up and then we'll be right back. And she's like, all right, take care of my, take care of my baby. All right. And he's like, yeah, of course, Robert Knight, AKA Alton Coleman and the little nine-year-old Vernita head off to his apartment. So the mom's just waiting and waiting and waiting. And honestly, when I read this, I was like, what? It becomes midnight. Okay. Midnight. So she says that she was scared to leave the apartment because what if Vernita came home? So it got to be midnight and it was still light out when they left, but now it's midnight. And she said that she couldn't handle it any longer. So she wrote a note for Vernita said, Hey, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to go look for you. If you return home, stay here. And she put it on the fridge and she left. So I don't want to be rude or say anything, but I just feel like it was, it was kind of a long time, but I understand she was scared to leave the apartment. Um, so anyway, she leaves that note. She goes to the address that Robert Knight Coleman leaves. Did you have a question? <laughs> I mean, I had a comment that Go ahead. everybody will probably hate because I'm sure you guys always hate my fucking bitchy comments, but I was going to say, why didn't she just call the cops and have the cops go look at the address to, to find the girl and she could stay there? You know what I mean? Or yeah. like have someone else stay at the house while she goes like there was other options other than waiting around until fucking midnight. <laughs> and then leaving a note like come on i don't know i yeah no. sorry not not really backing her up on her actions they're not saying it's her fault by any means but right, like right. come on dude what the fuck i agree so she just said it for us guys okay so <laughs> i always do <laughs> I, I always do i can't i'm sorry i have no filter <laughs> just fucking say what i think my bad that's why we have a podcast. People like to listen to it. Okay. I guess so. It's <laughs> part of the reason, right? All right. So the address ended up being an abandoned building. Guys, oh shit. Cause he gave her a fake name. He gave her a fake name, fake address. She didn't fucking live there. Uh, so Juanita's freaking out. So she goes to her friend's house and she, her friend's like, Juanita, it is time to go to the police. So, <laughs> yeah. So Yes. So she and her friend head to the police station. The police are like, we do not know a Robert Knight. Like there's no Robert Knight in the system. So they say, okay, let's show you some mugshot books. So they had the mugshot books back then. Yeah. And they're showing her the book. She's flipping through them and she's just, she's looking, looking, she's like, wait, that guy right there. They're like, that guy's Alton Coleman. So they look him up. Yeah. He has lots of, you know, record as we know. Right. So at this point they see what he's been arrested for as well. Possible murder, rape, attempted rape, 
attempted rape with a knife, all of these things. And usually of younger people, right? Mm -hmm. So they're like, this isn't looking good. The FBI is quickly contacted and they obtain a search warrant for Coleman's last known residence, which is his grandmother's house in Waukegan, Illinois. Deborah Brown, Coleman's uh, girlfriend, answers the door when the FBI get there. And she's like, well, he's been gone all night. Um, but then he came home around 8 a.m. to get a suit because he has a court appearance. Because remember, he's got to go to court, right? Um, because he was being charged with raping that little girl at knife point. And then she's also like, well, you know, he came back and he said that he might have done something kind of bad. Like, I remember she's not very smart. Right. So the FBI, well, first they're like, why are you here? Right. And she's like, yeah. I, I live here and I take care of his grandmother. So his grandmother had ailing health and like literally it was as soon as they met, they, you know, moved in and she took on caregiver role, which that's really rude as well, Alton, because your girlfriend is definitely impaired and you were leaving her with another impaired individual. To yeah, take how are of either of them supposed to? I mean, this is just a shit situation. All right. So the FBI wait for him to return. And this obviously does not pan out. He's not going to come back. So they're like, all right, we're going to offer a reward. So they put out $5,000 as a reward first. Okay. So May 31st, a cab driver from the neighborhood calls the FBI to say he was picking up uh, Coleman. So they all, they, everything's been sent out like, hey, we're looking for this dude. He's like, yeah, I've got it. I'm picking him up right now. Right. So the squad car arrives at the scene while Coleman is being dropped off at his sister's house, which I really hope it's not the same sister that he like raped his niece. I don't know. Probably. And probably. It was a family misunderstanding. Remember? Oh, I forgot. Yes. So he's getting dropped off. He turns around, he sees the squad car and he's like, no. And he takes off running. The agents are like, all right, he's taken off. It's night. We need some help. They go to the sister's house. They're like, we need your help. We need you to, we need him to hear a friendly voice. We need him to hear you saying, you know, let your, give yourself up. So she uses a blow horn to speak to him, urging him to give himself up. He does not care. That does not work. So they search for him for eight hours. He's really good at getting away. And then they give up for the night. And investigators publish Vernita's picture to hopefully get leads. And then a, another cab driver, so he's obviously taking cabs, uh, comes forward stating that he remembered Coleman and Vernita and that he had dropped them off near a scrapyard one night, but he assumed they were father and daughter. Okay, that's fucking weird. Why would you drop somebody off at a scrapyard? I mean, yeah, what I a weird know. fucking place to be. Yeah. And so the scrapyard had a night manager and he said he remembered seeing the two as well around midnight, the night of the of questioning. So it just doesn't make any sense. Now the FBI issues a warrant for the arrest of Coleman and then Coleman and Brown leave four days after the abduction of Vernita and they, they get out, get the hell out of Dodge. They go to Gary, Indiana. So somehow Coleman hooks back up with Brown. I don't know who's watching the grandmother at this point. They might have just left her. She's on her own. <laughs> yeah, but they take off. So that was four days after Vernita was missing. Vernita's badly decomposed corpse was discovered on June 19th. So this is after they've left, obviously, but she was found in an abandoned building four blocks from Coleman's grandmother's apartment. 
It was determined she'd been raped and the cause of death was ligature strangulation. Her hands, feet, and neck had been bound by television cable. The FBI ended up taking the door from the room that Bernita had been found in and they took it to the lab. I don't know why they took the whole door, but they did. They took it to the lab and they found a thumbprint on the door. Alton Coleman's fingerprints are in the system. It matched Alton Coleman. So now they're able to issue a warrant for arrest for Alton Coleman for the murder of Vernita. So this time the FBI speak with the profiler and the profiler says this, they believe that Coleman is reacting to the stress of the court appearance and his attack. And that would help. That's why he attacked Vernita because he was acting out of stress. Oh, okay. They believed he would continue to murder out of anger, stress, and rage. So that's not the best profile for under, I don't know, from what I'm seeing. How do you feel about that one? <laughs> I, yeah. I Who isn't like a little angry and a little stressed here and there? You know, that's goofy. Yeah, like, that's not, definitely not the reason that he's raping and murdering people. But agree. Okay. Yeah. At this point, the FBI starts a media campaign geared toward the black community. Uh, Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown are both African-American and they release pictures of them in hopes that someone will see both of them and turn them in. All right, we're moving on to June 18th, 1984 in Gary, Indiana. There's a little girl named Annie. She's nine years old and a little girl named Tamika Turks and she is seven years old. And they were walking to the candy store when they were approached by a man and a woman on bicycles. They said they had free clothes and asked the girls if they wanted free clothing. And the girls were like, yeah. And so they're like, hey, why don't you follow us? Um, Let's go over here and we can talk about it. Maybe play a game, blah, blah, blah. So the little girls are like, okay. So they follow them. They go to a secluded wooded area. The couple removed the younger child's shirt and Brown ripped it into strips and used it to tie up the little girls. So when she begins to cry, uh, the younger one, Brown held the child's mouth and nose and Coleman being the complete fucking psycho he is stomped on her chest, literally jumped on her chest and, and stomach and then threw her lifeless body into a weeded area. So they took off her shirt tied her up she starts crying that annoys them they jump on her chest and stomach and just toss her off like like garbage so now we just have annie nine-year-old annie and she's terrified and then both coleman and brown sexually assault her both of them they threatened to kill her if she did not do as they instructed afterwards they choke her until she loses consciousness when she wakes up she discovers her attackers are gone She managed to walk back to the road and this is where she finds some help. So Tamika, seven-year-old Tamika's body was recovered the following day. She had not survived the attack, but I guess after they had knocked Annie unconscious and, you know, they had thrown Tamika after they jumped and stomped on her, they thought she was dead and she started to make more noises. I'm assuming because a piece of bed sheet is found around her neck and they hadn't done that before and Mm. yeah so she must have made noise they were like great she's not dead let's go finish the job they strangle her and this bed sheet will later be linked to the bed sheets found in coleman and brown's apartment 
So they're not very smart, obviously. Mm-hmm. They're leaving all kinds of shit. All right. The next day, they pretend to be a couple named Phil and Pam. And they befriend 25-year-old Donna Williams. So later that evening, Donna's reported missing. And she was last seen leaving church. And she said she was on her way to pick up her friends, Phil and Pam. On June 26th, Donna's car is found in Detroit, Michigan. A fake ID was found in the car with Deborah Brown's picture on it. And Coleman, Alton Coleman's fingerprints were all over the car. On July 11th, Donna's body is found in an abandoned building not far from where her car was found. Her body was badly decomposed, which made it hard to determine if she'd been sexually assaulted or not, but she had been strangled. And so until this point, they've been going, Vernita was nine, Annie is nine, but she survived. Tamika is seven. And now they jump up to a 25 year old, which is interesting, but it kind of seems like they almost just, I don't know, attack at will. You know what I mean? It's not like they're planning it necessarily. It's just like, oh, okay. That one looks good. Opportunity. Yeah. All right. June 24th, they kidnap a 28 year old woman at knife point in front of her house, literally in front of her house. They demand that she drives them to Ohio. And she's kind of awesome because she starts driving the car and she was like, fuck this. She literally drives her car into a parked truck and then she gets out and runs away. Okay. That's pretty ballsy. Yeah. On June 28th, so this is four days later, they break into the home of Palmer and Marge Jones in Michigan. They beat and rob the older couple. They do survive, but they steal their car. So they're definitely into stealing cars and leaving them with lots of evidence inside. July 2nd, they break into 55 year old Marion Gaston's house. And Marion was a friend of another person, Mary Phillips. And that's another person they had become friends with recently. Okay. So Mary realizes pretty quickly that these two are not her friends. They tie up her and her friend, Marion. They gag them and they beat them both with a wrench. They then steal Marion's car and head to Ohio. All right. So the police are now looking for the couple in Illinois, Wisconsin, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. And they learn that Coleman is, at this point, very classic, disorganized killer. He does not stalk his victims. He in, instead, he lashes out on whoever is nearby, like you said, opportunistic. He also uses whatever tool he can find to assault his victims. So he does carry a knife with him generally, so he does have that. But, I mean, I guess he found that wrench and used it. He finds this, he uses that. You know, I mean, the bed sheet, the child's shirt, like, just whatever. Yeah. Just using whatever's available. It's whatever. On the holiday weekend of July 5th, the couple arrive in Toledo, Ohio, and Coleman manages to get into the home of another woman that he has befriended, Virginia Temple, who is a mother of small children, and her oldest daughter is nine-year-old Rochelle. The police are called to Virginia's home uh, to do a welfare check because her relatives were really concerned. They were like, we haven't seen her for a long time. She's not picking up our phone calls. She's has little kids. Like we feel like something's going on and someone should check on them. Right. Inside the home, Virginia and Rochelle's bodies are discovered in a crawl space and a bracelet was missing from the home. And this is just a little glimpse into the future. They later find this bracelet under the body of another victim. So Deborah was probably wearing it. 
loses it underneath the body. Again, super disorganized, no attention to detail. Uh, The cause of death for both Virginia and Rochelle was strangulation. And the other young children were fine. They were alive, but they were scared and they had been left alone for quite a while with their deceased mother and sister. Yeah. Yeah. The same morning of the murders of Virginia and Rochelle, Coleman and Brown entered the home same day of Frank and Dorothy Duvendak of Toledo, where Coleman proceeds to bind the couple with appliance and phone cords. Coleman and Brown take money and the Duvendak's car, and Mrs. Duvendak's watch was stolen. And later, guess what? Guess where it was found? Under another body. Under another body. And that probably was something that he was wearing. Or no, it was Mrs. So it's probably Deborah's again wearing it. On July 12th, Tony Story, a 15-year-old girl who lived in Cincinnati's over-the-Rhine neighborhood, disappeared on her way to class. Her body was discovered eight days later in an abandoned building. You know, they should just start checking abandoned buildings in the area. There's probably a lot of them, but still, that's the MO going on here, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was tied up and strangled. A bracelet had, that had been stolen from the temples was found under Story's body. And that's what we were talking about with the bracelet. A fingerprint of Coleman was found at the scene. And on the day of Story's disappearance, the FBI added him to their 10 most wanted list as a special edition. He is now the 11th most wanted man. So that's kind of hilarious. It's, you know, 10 most wanted. He's number 11. So he was the 10th person since the initiation of the list in 1952 merit inclusion in such a manner. So there had only been 10 people since 1950 that they added on there. And he was one of them. So Coleman and Brown bicycled. So they got some bikes that I'm not sure where. Into, <laughs> I mean, seriously, into Norwood on July 13th at about 930 a.m. Less than three hours later, they drive away in a car. And that car belongs to Harry Walters. And they had left Harry unconscious and his wife, Marlene, had been raped and beaten. Walters survives and later testifies that they had met the couple to discuss their potential purchase of a camper and that Coleman attacked him with a wooden candlestick from his home. A few hours later, their daughter comes home and finds her father at the bottom of the steps, barely alive. He had been handcuffed and had electrical cords around his feet. But Marlene, unfortunately, did not make it. And they did find a bloody sheet covering her head. So the daughter comes home to find her father at the bottom of the staircase, barely alive, and her mother dead. The coroner indicated Marlene had been bludgeoned approximately 20 to 25 times during her assault. And Walter had been hit so hard with the wooden candlestick that her skull was, that his skull was broken and a shard of bone had gone into his brain. Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, okay. They came to talk about buying a camper. They really just wanted to steal the car. Other people, they've taken money, beaten, tied up, stolen their car. I really don't understand why they like severely overkilled Marlene and beat him, beat Walter or no, Henry Walter so hard. Yeah. Literally bone broke off and went into his brain. I mean, my God, shards of a broken soda bottle had Coleman's fingerprints um, on them. Those were found in the living room. Bloody footprints made by two different pairs of shoes were found in the basement. 
and the Walters' car, as well as money, jewelry, and shoes were stolen. But two bicycles were left. Idiots. Clothes and shoes not belonging to Harry had been left behind. And this was Coleman and Brown's first attack on a white couple. It had been all African-American couples. And now this is their first white couple. So the MO that people think that they're going, you know, that they're going on here isn't necessarily true. It really does seem like it's very like situational based, right? Yeah. Two days after the attack, the Walters car was found abandoned in Kentucky. Around the same time, Coleman and Brown kidnap Olean Carmichael Jr., a college professor in Kentucky. They take his car and they lock him in the trunk of the car. They end up actually, they drive to Ohio with him in the car. And so remember, they're in Kentucky. They drive to Ohio. He's in the trunk the whole time. I don't know how far that is, but I don't think it's a short distance. And he does that when they leave the car, he is able to be found and he survives. So they just completely overkilled the older woman, Marlene. But then they found the professor took his car, stuck him in the trunk and left him so that he could survive. So it, it's very like all over the place. Yeah. On July 17th, they abandoned the car. And like I said, he was rescued by the police. They then show up at the home of a 77 and 79 year old Reverend Millard Gay and his wife, Catherine in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, The Reverend and his wife had hosted the couple before and, but they had been using aliases before. So now their pictures remember are being posted everywhere and they let Coleman and Brown know they're like, we know who you are. So it's not the best choice to let them know that because they're crazy. And that's why they're, you know, being their pictures are posted everywhere. So this makes them get into an argument and they pull guns on the Reverend and his wife. They tie them up and the Reverend asks why they're doing this. And Coleman responds saying that they're not going to kill them. Uh, but the Reverend does get pistol whipped, and they, and they attempt to strangle Catherine. And I don't know why it doesn't work. But it does not. And Coleman then tries to shoot Catherine, but his gun jams. So something's keeping Catherine alive. <laughs> I mean, she's like, I'm not going down. The Lord uh, was on her side that day. <laughs> Said he's a reverend, right? Yes. They steal money in the couple's car and then drive to Evanston, Illinois. So remember, they're back kind of in their home turf now, right? So Joaquin and Evanston are not that far from each other. On the way to Evanston, they find a man, Eugene Scott, 77. And instead of just putting him in the trunk, they kill him and then take his car. They don't just kill him, though. They shoot and they stab him multiple times and leave him in a ditch on the side of the road outside of Indianapolis. And this is the first man that they ever kill. They've only killed women at this point. July 20th, 1984, they arrive in Evanston. And remember, this is around his neighborhood. So somebody from his old neighborhood sees them walking down the street. They should not have gone back to Evanston, idiots. Um, So he goes straight to the gas station, calls the police. So the police swarm the area and they're just sitting on a bench. They're like, okay, Alton Coleman, Deborah Brown. And Coleman's like, you have the wrong person. I don't know what you're talking about. And Deborah just gets up and starts to walk away. The police, police approach her and she says her name is Deborah Johnson. 
and not Deborah Brown. And Coleman also gives an alias because they think they're going to get away with it, but their pictures are literally everywhere and their aliases are known. When they're arrested, a long knife is found in Coleman's boot and a loaded gun is found in Brown's purse. They also had a shopping bag with them filled with different shirts and hats and they stopped every three or four blocks to change their clothes. Okay. What? That is suspicious to me. Like it, I would be more. Yeah, why do you want to change your clothes? What? I think they wanted people to like be like, if somebody recognized them, it's like, oh, it could have been them. Now they have a pink hat and a black. Oh hat. yeah, they were but, they were wearing a pink shirt. Now they're wearing a fucking black shirt. Uh, that's so, still so stupid. It's so dumb. Like, where are you changing? You just going down the that's alley? That's some stuff. That's like some some quote unquote smart shit that a super dumb person would come up with, right? I mean, come on, because if you're actually intelligent, you realize that that makes no fucking sense. And you're like way overdoing it. It makes no sense. Not to mention the fact that you wouldn't be back in your hometown where everybody fucking knows you anyway. And what if you're just changing your hat? (laughs) Jesus. so stupid. Okay. I can't. No. A week after the arrest, more than 50 law officials from Illinois, Wisconsin, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, and Kentucky, they all meet up. Talk about like people, you know how usually like just, or what are they called? Jurisdictions won't talk to each other. Yeah. These guys are like, let's meet. So yeah. all, like there's like 50 of them that all meet up and they're like, all right, what's the best plan here? So because of death penalty laws, Ohio's like, I got this. So Ohio says, let's be tried here first because they've got the death penalty and they don't fuck around. So Ohio's going first. They're going to do the rest of the cases later. And they really do think this is going to be the quickest way to get the death penalty implemented. So question for you. Oh God. Cause I'm thinking about this. Is that really, is that legal to be like, we want these guys to die. So where could that happen easiest? Oh, Ohio. Okay. We'll go to you because you'll implement the death penalty. Like, well, I think the way that they get around that is because they committed crimes in multiple states. So it's like who can quote unquote, get their shit together quick enough in order to try them there faster as the, like the loophole, I think that you use on that one is like, Oh, well, and also was Ohio, Ohio was the first place that they went after. Right. Oh God. They, yes, it was, it was the first place. So that makes perfect sense too, that that would be the first place they would try somebody. If anybody wanted to be anything like say anything about it, it'd be like, well, this is the first place that they committed their crime in their little spree they had. So, yeah. Well, yeah. So they would have a way to get around it, but I'm just kind of like, I mean, I, I don't know if there's actually like a, a law specific law for that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't either. But it's like, I mean, yeah, I, I, so they have a goal know. and the goal is to send those two straight to death row. And they felt like with the DNA that was left at crime scenes, they had totally enough evidence to do just that. Right. So Coleman and Brown, they become interrogated, but of course they're separated mm-hmm. and Brown invokes her right to remain silent and asks for an attorney after she is Mirandized. The FBI agent who Mirandized her He continued to ask her questions like, what's your name? How old are you? What's your address? What's your birth date? Then there was an Evanston detective there because they're all hanging out. And he asked her questions as well about a crime that was committed in his area. And since she invoked her right to remain silent and ask for an attorney, 
that's illegal and that yeah they can't use any of that stuff right no matter what she said so we'll come back to that um all right once she arrives at federal lockup in chicago she's advised of her rights again and she said at this point she's like okay i'll talk to you guys as long as i feel comfortable so for the next two and a half hours she feels comfortable because she talks about her crime sprees in detail and she spills all the beans she's like here we go this is everything that happened yes i did this yes i did that and then she says but i'd like an attorney <laughs> what? which it's you you fucked up mm-hmm. and, uh, you had the right idea to begin with that you just couldn't fucking stick with it couldn't stop it she couldn't stop herself at this point detectives had everything they needed so they're like you can have an attorney because they don't need to interrogate her any further because they have the whole thing can they technically use that though even though they'd already mirandized her the first time well here we go so during her trial proceedings her attorney protests that her fifth amendment right the right against self-incrimination had been violated by the authorities and they continued to question her after she asked for an attorney the Evanston detective was found guilty of violating her rights. So her confession to this detective was deemed inadmissible. But this did not matter because her confession to the Chicago detectives was admissible and was a confession to all the crimes in question. So it's kind of strange and confusing because you know what the goal here is, is to get these two on death row. But they're like, all right, the detective... The first detective, the FBI detective, they're all from Chicago. He said, she's like, okay, I want my attorney. And he's like, okay. And then he was like, what's your name? What's your age? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. So that stuff, they, they said it pretty much, oh, where was it? Oh, I'll get to it. But it's, it's a admissible due to space, time, and subject. So they're going to get away with the the questioning of when she gets to the federal facility and she starts spilling the beans they're saying that's fine but before she gets there any of that stuff is not admissible yes okay because she didn't say anything until she got there but yeah she was convicted of the murder of tamika turks seven years old and was sentenced to death for this crime her attorney tried to appeal this conviction but in august of 1991 The court ruled that the conviction and the death sentence would stand. They determined that even though she had asked for an attorney, the questioning of her was admissible due to space, time, and subject matter. She chose to talk to them and it was her choice. So the whole thing of space. So like very like abstract here, but it's like, all right, what, what room were you in? Okay. Were you in the same room as when the Evanston guy asked you? Nope. You were in a federal lockup. Okay time was it the same time no it was hours later and subject matter we weren't talking about the evanston case we are talking about all of the cases so it's really abstract in my opinion but that's how they got away with it okay yep they're being tricky in this one all right together the con- the couple was convicted of carrying out a 53-day crime spree across multiple midwestern states that resulted in eight killings seven rapes three kidnappings and 14 armed robberies during her sentence brown sent a note to the judge and this one's going to catch you off guard she said i killed the bitch and i don't give a damn i had fun out of it what that's the seven-year-old that she got convicted of the one that they stomped on and then choked i killed the bitch I don't give a damn. I had fun out of it. Why did she send that to the judge? I don't know. I don't know. Why would you do that? 
I mean, it doesn't matter what the judge says because they have a jury, right? So the jury is who makes the decision, but still like, like what? Why? You lunatic. Yikes. Yeah, All right. Yikes is right. Before the governor of Ohio retires, he commutes her death sentence to a life imprisonment sentence because of her very low IQ and her dependent personality disorder. He commuted a total of eight sentences that year, and four of them were women on Ohio's death row. So he pretty much got rid of all the women on Ohio's death row, including her. So she is currently serving her sentence without the possibility of parole at the Dayton Correctional Institution in Dayton, Ohio. She finally expressed remorse for her crimes when she apologized to the victim's families in a video in 2005. And it's still unlikely that she'll ever be freed from prison because she faces two consecutive life sentences in Ohio, plus an additional 140 years in Indiana. So I don't think she's getting out. <laughs> and who cares if she finally showed remorse? That bitch has no remorse. She's only showing remorse now so she can get maybe out. Maybe have a chance of getting out. Yeah, she doesn't give a fuck. No. All right. The state of Ohio convicted Coleman and Brown, finding them guilty of the rape and murder of Tony Story in Cincinnati, Marlene Walters in Norwood, but not for the murders of Virginia and Rochelle Temple in Toledo. Coleman's case was sent to the U.S. Supreme Court several times between 1985 and 2002, but he and he had numerous arguments that his conviction and death sentence were unconstitutional that failed to sway the justices. And Coleman was the only one sitting on death row at the time who was sentenced to death in three states. So in general, in the United States, the only person sentenced to death in three states at the same time. Wow. He's, yeah, he's definitely not going anywhere. While in prison, Coleman was determined to have mixed personality disorder. He had a little mixture of antisocial, narcissistic, and obsessive features, epileptic spasms, psychosis, and borderline personality disorder. So that's a lot. However, Coleman's death sentence in relation to the story killing was overturned in a separate proceeding. Despite this, his death sentence in relation to the Walters murder remained upheld. In addition to the death sentence, Coleman and Brown were each sentenced to 20 years in prison for transporting their kidnapped victim, Olean Carmichael, across the state line. Remember, they put the Kentucky professor in the car and left him in the trunk for a really long time. 20 years for that. Coleman had received two death sentences from Ohio and one each from Illinois and Indiana on April 25th, 2002, 16 years after Coleman is convicted, the Ohio Supreme court rejects a claim by Coleman's attorney that the state's plan to accommodate the large number of victims and survivors who wanted to view the execution would turn it into a spectator sport. So he's going to be executed. It, lots of people want to come victims survivors family they want to yeah. come and coleman says that this is going to be a spectator sport and this is like unconstitutional and they're like too bad so they are allowed to witness the execution and they had set up closed circuit viewing like a venue outside of the building so there's a total of 30 people there the room the actual room that you can sit in to like really view the execution fits 12 people so the other 18 were in a different like special viewing room to watch it on like closed circuit viewing right um 
And on the day of the de- of his death, he was offered a shave and a shower, but he refused. And he spent the days before his execution with his spiritual advisors, because of course, everybody gets religious before they die. Yeah. His last meal. I know you like last meals. <sighs> he ordered a well-done filet mignon smothered with mushrooms, fried chicken Ew. breasts, a salad with French dressing, sweet potato pie topped with whipped cream, French fries, collard greens, onion rings, cornbread, broccoli with melted cheese, biscuits and gravy, and a cherry Coke. And before his execution, he released a letter apologizing for what he had done. On October 26th, he recited Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and just said it over and over and over until his execution was final. He was executed by lethal injection in the death chamber at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville. Reginald Wilkinson, director of the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction, said Coleman had not directly expressed remorse for the killings, but that he had admitted what he'd done in his own convoluted way. He was pronounced dead at 10.13 a.m. when he was 46 years old. Some authorities believe that Coleman and Brown, who are both African-American, usually select Black victims because they know that they'll blend in better in the Black community and that their crimes lacked really a racial motive, right? But John Douglas, our FBI profiler who's retired, wrote a book, Anatomy of Motive. He states that Coleman, in the middle of a vicious sexual assault, quote, went into a practically incoherent tirade about how Blacks were forcing him to rape and murder other Blacks as if they could somehow explain and justify his actions. So, well, I, he was sexually abused as a child. Yep. So I'm wondering, and if his grandmother and his mother did, you know, I'm assuming that he was probably molested yep. by more black people than white people. And yes, if absolutely. I had to guess, can, can you know what I mean? Just like considering the community yep. that they were in. So if anything, that's why I would think that maybe he yep. targets them. Not, you know what I mean? Like yes. it's, it's because of what he went through as a child. It doesn't yes. have anything to do with which maybe that's what his fucking rant was about. Exactly. That it was like they were doing that stuff to him. And that's why he, you know, like goes back at them. I don't know. That's what I was going to say is that, that if it's connected to anything, I think it's connected to his childhood trauma. Yeah, I and agree. Also, he they always went after women. And he definitely I mean, his mother threw him in the garbage, his grandmother, like just. Well, she she ran a a, if she ran a brothel, brothel, that means there were women that were, you know what I mean? So yeah. the likelihood of him getting sexually abused as a child by other women yes, or by women in general is yes. pretty highly likely. 100%. So I, yeah, I think he was, I think most of this comes from there. The only time he, they killed a man was when I don't, they freaked out after they had taken that one guy, um, Ollie in the car forever and left him in the trunk. The other guy, they were like, yeah, fuck you. They shot, stabbed him. And then they stole his car and threw him in a ditch. So some people think that that was like Deborah kind of being like my turn. So maybe she took part I, in that, took I don't know as them being like it's too much fucking work and hassle to have to drag somebody around <laughs> in the you truck. know what i mean that's what i'm thinking i'm thinking they were like we're risking everything to have this person in the fucking trunk that could escape at any time or whatever like it'll just yeah. be easier if we just kill the person and they can't say who took their car yeah any final thoughts on these fun 
this fun little duo here? I don't know. They just made so, thank God they were as dumb as they were because they made so many mistakes, which is what got them everything figured out. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. A lot of these cases that we cover, they'll not find a body for somebody or whatever. You know what I mean? Because they were somewhat smart enough to be able to cover their tracks in some way. These two weren't fucking smart enough to cover up anybody's tracks, let alone their fucking own. So at least all these families got closure knowing where their family members were and all that stuff. Like they didn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't a secret. Yeah. Cause a lot, you know, like we said in a lot of these cases that we cover families die, not ever knowing. Yeah. Exactly. So like that, at least they were dumb enough to make enough mistakes to get everything figured out. Right. Yeah. I mean, even leaving your fake ID in a car that you stole, dude, her stealing the jewelry every time because it, it, it falls and, off and leaving it at different rhyme scenes. Like, like they just, I can't. What? Okay. Mm-hmm. Using their own bed sheets. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like yeah. obviously, if they're if he's on the America's Most Wanted, they've already checked your house and they know the shit that you have. Yeah. So let's just leave little traces of it everywhere. That's a great fucking idea. Bloody footprints, two sets. I'm like, okay, all right, let's move on to trivia. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, last week I asked you guys in 1978, a grocer in Paris was sent to jail for two years for stabbing his wife with what I had two people answer in only one of you got it correctly. Um, and the answer was a wedge of cheese. (laughs) It's so funny and weird. And I mean, it's not funny that it happened, but you know, it's a funny, but that's a hard, that's a hard wedge of cheese, a hard fucking piece of cheese. Um, what did the other person say? So the correct, the correct answer was strawberry cheesecake. The wrong answer was Tammy Hartman one. And she said a clay statue, which I mean, is a great, is a great guess. Sure. It's a great guess, (laughs) but it was a block of cheese. That is so crazy. Fucking weird. Very weird. All right. So this week's question is who drove around in a hearse with the bumper sticker reading, I haul dead people. And what did he tell people he drove it for? All right, DM your answers. Yes. And Send me your answers through DM. Please do not comment them. Yeah, because we don't want other people to see your answers. So exactly. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for your support. Please share the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, we're gonna get some more stickers, hopefully. Uh, we've been selling some stickers, so we're gonna get some more. And if you guys would like some, go ahead and go to our big cartel. We also have some other really cool stuff on there. So just check that out. Um, your support really does um help us in so many ways, and we just really love our listeners. So thanks, guys. All right. Well, as always, remember, don't, don't get, get in the, the band. band.